This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Thanks to this episode's sponsor, LLC, TLC. They are just doing an incredible job saving you money on your registration. Be sure to register your vehicles, airplanes, boats, street legal, side-by-sides, and trailers to your own Montana LLC, and you will pay $0 in sales tax. So go to LLCTLC.com for more information. All right, so let's kick it off here. Here are 14 classic muscle cars that are actually worth owning today. Now, I have a theory that the 1960s muscle cars all the way up to like 1973, 1974 will always be worth good money because they can keep up with today's traffic. They're easy to work on. They usually come with some decent options or you can add options just fine. And there's a ton of aftermarket suppliers out there. So I think if you have a muscle car, pony car, sports car from the 60s, early 70s, hang on to it. It's not gonna lose value. It will always be desirable. All right. And this is from SlashGear.com. Great article by Justin Owen. Really, uh, really nice work. So let's get to it. Muscle cars are as American as wide open highways, fast food drive throughs and apple pie. Born in the 60s at a time when American manufacturers were engaged in a race for the most horsepower, muscle cars showcased the most advanced engine technology automakers had to offer at the time. While there is some debate on what exactly defines what makes a muscle car, some agree Agreed upon traits include two doors, V8 engine, and lightweight chassis. That's a fun point because people keep beating me up because at one point I called a Mustang a muscle car. I'll get into that in a second. They are generally a mid-size car and also carry four passengers. Most are a notchback design with a trunk. However, a few fastbacks are included. One trait they all share is horsepower and lots of it. The heyday of the muscle cars was in the period of the late 1960s and early 1970s before a global oil crisis and regulations on safety and emissions started to spoil the fun. Horsepower rainy peaked in 1970 before big block engines fell out of favor and everything else became so restricted that even the Cadillac, even a Cadillac 500 cubic inch engine barely made 200 horsepower. These are some of the most celebrated cars in the American auto industry and they have seen a resurgence with new models coming out and classics shooting up in value. There are a lot of good muscle cars to choose from and the most desirable models today can only be owned if you have a bit of wealth, but should money cease to be a factor, these are 14 muscle cars that are actually worth owning today. Now the very first one listed here goes to show my point. Like is a Mustang a muscle car? I will make the argument that the 1968 and a half with the 428 big block engine that is definitely a muscle car. But for this article, they mentioned the Shelby GT350. Carroll Shelby is a legend of American auto manufacturing and racing. He put together the car, the GT40, that helped Ford beat Ferrari at Le Mans and cemented his position modifying cars for Ford Motor Company. In the first full year of production for the all new Mustang, which was already breaking sales records, Shelby got a hold of a fastback version and created what would be the first of many ultra-fast Shelby-branded Mustangs, the Shelby GT350. According to CJ Pony Parts, this car was originally conceived as a machine for racing and copies were built for the street and the track. 35, eh, that's not right, it's 36. 36 Shelby GT350R models were made for racing purposes and another 513 road-going copies were made and sold to the public. All right. 
I would agree with that as a muscle car and that's a Mustang, people. All right, next is the AMC AMX. American Motors Corporation was an independent automaker that struggled to survive for decades. However, despite its economic struggles, the plucky little company from Kenosha, Wisconsin managed to crank out interesting cars year after year. Having smaller budgets for development meant having to be clever and inventive to make new models from old designs and to utilize parts across the whole model range. Designer Dick Teague may have been the company's greatest asset as he was able to work with these confining, confined conditions to create some remarkable designs for cars that are still desirable today, such as the AMX. Often obscured from the long shadows of Mustangs, Chargers, and Camaros of the day, the AMX was competent competition in this time of fast and garish muscle cars. In the end, AMX only lasted through three model years, having only two seats and going up against competition with much deeper pockets made it hard to gain traction in the market. And 1970 was its final year. Today, they are, among they are a favorite among collectors and their rarity makes them a popular curiosity at classic car events. The good news for collectors is that their value remains substantially lower than the other muscle cars of the era and an extremely nice one can be had for under $50,000. You know, the, the looks are a little polarizing. Uh, I wouldn't call them attractive, but I'm actually, you know, as I get older, I start liking them more and more and more. All right, next is a beautiful car, the Dodge Challenger. Dodge came a little late to the pony car party. Plymouth had been running the Barracuda against Mustangs and Camaros for some time when Dodge released his Challenger in 1970. The first generation Challenger, according to the State Journal Register, was only on sale for four years and its total production was rather low compared to the Ford and GM pony cars of the time. Only just over 165,000 units were made. The oil crisis hit hard and killed fuel-thirsty muscle cars, especially the Hemi 440s, the 426, and 383s. A Challenger a note from the time is the TA Challenger, which was equipped with a 346-pack, meaning it had a trio of two-barrel carburetors, same as my 66 GTO. Now, if you've listened to me before, you know I love those TAs and also the AARs. Those are just beautiful, little, cool muscle cars. While the Challenger was dropped in 1974, the name was revived when it was placed on an imported Mitsubishi Galant Coupe with a four-cylinder engine. That's horrendous. It was much smaller and had half the cylinders. It was not a muscle car, but in 2005, Dodge brought back the Challenger, not just as a V8 pony car, but with some of the same lines as the original in a modern package. It has been a huge success and spawned some of the fastest and baddest modern muscle cars there are, including the 840-horsepower Demon, an honorable successor to the original. Yeah, for sure. That thing would blow the doors off any of the originals. All right, next is the Plymouth Superberg. Bird. <laughs> Berg. The 1970 Superberg was Plymouth's answer to the Dodge Charger Daytona that hit the tracks a year before. So those are the two winged birds. While the cars may look similar, they are not the same. However, Plymouth was able to use the wind tunnel test data that Dodge had used already. The single purpose of the Superbird was to win NASCAR races, and it did. When Dodge created the Daytona, 550 road-going copies had to be made, but due to rule changes, Plymouth had to produce 1,900 copies of the car to be sold in dealerships. Creating and building this car was an expensive endeavor, and it would push the retail price up significantly over stick vehicles, but Plymouth made it anyways. Part of Plymouth's plan with the car was to encourage Richard Petty to return to the brand for racing, which he did. 
With the Superbird at Petty's control, it won eight races with an additional 10 wins by other drivers. It was a success. NASCAR changed the rules once again in 1971, making the car obsolete. Therefore, only one year model exists, and today it is a striking, strikingly rare and astronomically valuable. While the original selling price of the Superbird was $4,280, one sold recently at auction for a record $1.65 million. Now that was a four-speed 426 Hemi version. I'm sure it had rare colors and other stuff to do with it. So what's interesting, if you put a Superbird next to the Daytona, they both have wings, but the wings are significantly different, which is pretty cool to see. All right, next is the Chevy Chevelle SS396. The muscle car era was flushed with big block power from all of the manufacturers, and Chevrolet was no exception. The Chevy 396 was the big block engine suitable for making large amounts of power while remaining tame enough to keep it on the street. It was a popular engine, especially when fitted in a Chevelle in the SS396 model, which debuted in 1965. These first year SS models came with a 327 horsepower L37 396 V8 improved brakes and a stiffer suspension. The option code for this car was Z16 and only 201 were built that year. The SS396 was a popular seller over the next years of sales, but it became an option for any car in the second generation Chevelle rather than a specific model. Today, the SS396 is among the most collectible Chevelles made and one of the most collectible Chevrolets from the period, especially convertibles as few were produced. RM Sotheby's list one in 2008 with a winning bid of $74,000. It is likely that value would double today. However, should one be found run down in a barn somewhere, parts are easily obtainable and an old wreck can easily be found turned into gas-powered gold. All right, next is the Chevrolet Camaro ZL1. This is a big dog. Using GM's special order system, a clever dealer in Illinois especially ordered a Camaro with the build built for racing ZL1 427 V8 for inventory, resulting in a total of 69 being produced. At the time, the ZL1 engine code was a big block 427 V8 that was all aluminum construction for race cars, whereas consumer engines were iron and weighed 100 pounds more. Official output for the engine was 430 horsepower, but according to Motor Trend, actual input output was likely north of 500. Sam hand ringing was involved in getting the cars from Chevrolet as project managers did not want to build the cars and set a minimum order of 50 units. Chevy dealer Fred Gibb agreed to the order of 50 cars and they headed into production. 37 would eventually be returned to Chevrolet and those were sub subsequently sent back out to other interested dealers. These performance-oriented models originally sold for around $7,000, which was a higher price than a new Corvette at the time. But things have changed since then. High-performance vehicles tend to hold value well, and special editions can fetch high prices as the cars age. The Z01 fits in line with this, as surviving models are possibly the most valuable Camaros in existence. One model in mint condition crossed the auction block at Bear Jackson in 2019, selling for just shy of $1.1 million. The legacy of the Z01 lives on today as Chevrolet revived the option package with the current model offering a supercharged V8 that makes 650 horsepower. What, two interesting notes on the Z01. If you go to my YouTube channel, scroll back until you find the YouTube video where there's 187 Chevrolets in one collection. Check that out. I believe I go into the engine room for that collection and there were four 
ZL1 engine blocks in that engine. No, I'm sorry. I take that back. There were four ZL1 Camaros in the Copo section of the collection. And it was stated that that was the most ZL1 Camaros in any one collection in the world. The second fun note is, is if you get a chance to tour Reggie Jackson's collection during Monterey Car Week, he usually has an open house. If you go into his engine room, I do remember there being one or two ZL1 engine blocks in his engine room. All right, next is the Dodge Coronet RT. In 1965, Dodge reduced the size of his full-size cars in response to market trends. That decision, according to Hemmings, was a bit foolhardy as other manufacturers did not follow suit, and that left Dodge's cars looking small by comparison. The new smaller car was then introduced as an intermediate size and used, uh, used a revived name from the 1950s, the Coronet. It turned out to be a good idea as it ended up being a favorite model from the muscle car era. I've never found these very attractive. While the Coronet was smaller than the large family of cars at the time, it put it at a great size for competing with other muscle cars such as the Pontiac GTO or Ford Torino. It would be small enough to deliver decent handling but remain stout enough to shove a giant Hemi engine under the hood, and that is what Dodge did. The star of the Coronet line is the Coronet RT model. This received as standard the 440 Magnum engine and three-speed torque flight transmission standard with a Hemi engine and four-speed gearbox optional. The RT received a tachometer, bucket seats, bigger brakes, and upgraded suspension, and year later, later year models could get raised hood scoops. The torque from these massive engine engines makes the car pull off the line from the start. All right, let's see, we've got a few more here. Osmobile 442. Pontiac's GTO set off a storm in the auto industry that had product planners scrambling for a way to compete with their own performance model. Osmobile responded by applying its B9 police apprehender pursuit package to existing cutlass line to the existing cutlass line, calling it a 442 for its four-barrel carburetor, four-speed transmission, and dual exhaust. The initial model featured a 330 V8 with 310 horsepower. Once Osmobile had some time to properly develop the model, it received a new 400 cubic inch V8 based on the 425 big block, which changed the naming convention to 400, four-speed, and dual exhaust. All right, next is the probably the most, well, the most expensive muscle car, the Plymouth Hemi Cuda Convertible. Very few of these were ever made. The, Plym the Plymouth Cuda is an offshoot from its popular Barracuda line, but remains its own separate name. I think they're gorgeous. Beautiful, beautiful cars. For 1971, the Cuda came equipped with a 426 engine Hemi engine, backed by a heavy-duty version of the 727 torque flight transmission or a four-speed manual. It was also treated to suspension upgrades and chassis reinforcements, but disc brakes were an option. The giant engine made for substantial torque and propelled the car to 60 miles per hour in just 5.8 seconds. However, it could also handle a few corners, something challenging for other muscle cars of the day. Cuda also received aesthetic treatments, including special paint graphics and decorative air slots above the front wheel wells. To be blunt, they are beautiful cars. The Cuda showed up just as the party was winding down. It would be just a couple of years before the creation of the EPA and the days of big dirty power were numbered. <laughs> but if, as a car company, you wanted to end the muscle car era on a high note, then Plymouth succeeded brilliantly. The second generation of Barracuda was a rousing success for Chrysler, selling tens of thousands of units over its four-year run. 
However, Hemikudo sales were much more limited as the company's high performance packages made them significantly more expensive. Therefore, only 652 Hemikudo coupes were built with an additional 14 drop tops. As a result, in 2021, one of the convertibles went up for auction with Mecham and failed to meet the reserve with a bid of $4.8 million. Now, I haven't confirmed this, but I've heard of those 14 cars. One guy has like, I don't know, five or six of them, which is kind of keeping the market high up there. I don't know. Be interesting to know if that statement was true, but I've heard that from quite a few different folks. All right, next is the Dodge Charger RT Hemi. Dodge released the first Charger in 1966 as its first Fastback Intermediate Racer. While the Coronet filled out the intermediate-sized cars, Fastbacks were all the rage, and Dodge wanted to cash in on the popularity, so created the Charger as a fun and fast alternative. The first-generation models can be identified by their distinctive rectangular inset from grills, grills with hidden headlights and the sloping long rear window that terminates near the end of the trunk. It also features rear windows, a rarity for two-door cars, and lacks a pillar, creating an open and spacious cabin that can feel almost like a convertible when cruising down the highway. Dodge redesigned the Charger for 1968, making several styling changes that introduced more curves and special additions, notably the Charger RT, a member of what Chrysler marketed as the Scat Pack, also including the Coronet RT, the Dodge Dart GTS, the automaker performed another redesign just a couple of year la- years later with the 1971 model. The RT package held over, although sales fell sharply. For the 1971 model year, only 63 Charger RT models left the factory. Wow, I didn't know that. This was and is the most desirable model of Charger that Dodge ever made. Current prices get close to $320,000, especially if equipped with the ultra-rare sunroof option. All right. Next, we have the Buick GSX. In the pantheon of American muscle cars, names like GTO, Chevelle, and Charger get tossed around a lot, but an oft-overlooked nameplate that also deserves recognition is Buick's GSX. Based on the popular Skylark model, the GSX was sold as a standalone model to showcase Buick's more aggressive performance abilities. The 1970-1972 Buick GSX came in a variety of bright, eye-catching colors with a monstrous 455 cubic inch V8 engine. Buick wanted to attract younger buyers to the brand and felt more muted colors and conservative styling in its lineup was not cutting it. The GSX broke the mold in a bold way rather successfully. While the GSX did successfully bring out the flair and attitude of a younger and more aggressive buyer, it did little to boost sales. Buick moved 678 units of the GSX in 1970, while the Pontiac GTO judge surpassed 3,000 units, and the GTO nearly hit 4,000. Owning a classic muscle car like this brings some unique advantages over well, more well-known examples. Pristine examples of a GSX will be expensive, but not overly valued like some of the auction stars from the period. But perhaps the most gratifying benefit is that at a classic car show, a Buick GSX will draw a lot of attention from from curious enthusiasts who may not be familiar with it, leaving ample opportunity to talk about it with like-minded fans. Current listings from Hemming show that perfect condition examples can be had for about $50,000. All right, we have got three more here. The next one is the Pontiac GTO, The Judge. Here comes The Judge. John DeLorean is often said to have kicked off the muscle car era with his Pontiac GTO performance model of the Le Mans. 
Lamans, Lamans. It proved to be a wildly successful project, and the model remained a part of the Pontiac lineup until 1974. DeLorean later wanted to release a model that appealed to younger buyers with performance in mind. His car ended up featuring a 400 cubic inch V8 with a Ram air induction hood, Hurst shifter, functional rail spoilers, wider wheels, and custom decals denoting the special model. According to Silodrome, he was a fan of Sammy Davis Jr. on the popular comedy show Rowan and Martin's Laughing, and he called it The Judge, a reference to Here Comes the Judge skit. It was bright and brash and originally came only in one color, orange, which was officially called Carousel Red. While the initial idea was to make a more affordable performance package for the GTO, the judge's price was higher by a fairly large amount. The judge performed well in terms of sales with nearly 10% of GTO production coming with the special package. As much of a shot in the arm the judge provided for Pontiac, the writing was on the wall for muscle cars and 1969 would be the only year it was made the only year it made it to dealers. The unique package offerings and graphics package make it a highly desirable car to own. Recent sales on bringing trailers so that you will need up to $100,000 to get one for yourself. All right, two more. Uh, let's see. The Ford Boss Mustang 429, 1969-1970. Modern Mustangs offer a range of options for those who want huge horsepower numbers that include supercharged and turbocharged engines with direct injection and complex digital controls. In 1969, the only option for gaining horsepower was to gain displacement. And that is why the 1969 and 1970 Boss 429 is king of classic Mustangs. The Boss 429 was part of Ford's desire to make faster cars to win on the track. It enlisted the builder of the company's successful GT40 Le Mans winner to stuff the biggest engine possible into the popular pony car. And that was Carcraft with a K. The Boss 429 was manufactured for only two years with just enough models to satisfy hom homologation rules for NASCAR. This means a scant 1,359 left the workshop in total. The car was officially rated at 375 horsepower, with many contemporaries claiming actual output was much higher. Regardless, it made for a fast pony car that won its fair share of races and went on to be among the most valuable must of all Mustangs. As fast cars go, you can't do much better than a Boss 429. As long-term investments go, it may not be too bad either. Paying the original sticker price of about $4,000 now yields a sum of nearly half a million dollars when these are brought up for auction. That's not right. They have really taken a hit lately. You, you can get a really, really nice one for high 200s, low 300s. And, you know, it says 375 horsepower. That I think that's probably more accurate than people think because uh, the emissions choked that engine and the exhaust system to where it really was not that fast of a performer unless you put on a different exhaust and kind of helped it breathe a little bit better. All right, last one. This one's interesting because I don't know that I would call it a muscle car. I don't know. Let, let me know what you think. Chevrolet Camaro Yanko Turbo Z. What? A turbo and a muscle car thing here? All right. While the most popular and highly praised muscle cars come from the late 1960s, muscle cars did not completely die with the creation of the EPA. Furthermore, auto manufacturers placed many resources into making modified cars to sell performance variants to the public for increased revenue and marketing purposes, while some smart dealers created their own versions independently of manufacturers. One Chevrolet dealer, Don Yanko, began modifying Camaros and Corvairs. With backing from Chevrolet, he produced several versions of these cars that have become coveted collector items today. The last of these projects was the 1981 Turbo Z Camaro. I mean, are, are there really any muscle cars from 1981? 
By 1981, horsepower ratings had fallen precipitously along with emissions. Yinko found a good way to bring the horsepower back up by adding a turbocharger to the Camaro. The Z28 came with a small block 350 V8 engine with Yinko adding a turbo, providing up to seven pounds of boost. It also had water injection and a fuel heater to keep it compliant with EPA rules. No horsepower stats were published, but Haggerty estimates a range of 240 to 250 horsepower based on his quarter mile run time of 14.51 seconds. While it was past the prime of muscle car era and its power output still paled in comparison, it is a unique and clever car. Working within the technology, technological constraints of the day, Yanko managed to squeeze a good increase of power out of the car and create something special. Only 19 were built, which makes it extremely rare today. All right, so I don't know if I agree with that one. As a muscle car, I guess you could say it's a muscle car from the 1980s. Uh, anyways, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for watching. Thanks for listening. Please share, and I will talk to all of you next week. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.